everybody. Welcome to the ICS podcast. My name is Martin Calvert. I am the marketing director here at ICS Digital and ICS Translate. Today, I'm joined by Marta Izquierdo, who's head of marketing for Europe at IG. Uh, IG is a phenomenally uh, large, vast company doing all sorts of interesting things in the world of finance and trading. So, Marta, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So, I, mean, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, can you introduce a little bit more about the company, what you do, and things of that nature? Sure, thank you. Um, so, I use a financial services company. We have 109,000 clients worldwide. And what we offer is uh, very powerful trading apps uh, on desktop and mobile. Um, where you can trade the financial markets in some of our markets we also offer investment products but as i had marketing for europe in europe we only do trading so it's financial trading so think if you want to invest in commodities like gold or oil or financial indices like uh, the dow jones um, or the ibex in spain or of course uh, forex pairs and we also offer um, cryptocurrencies such as bitcoin for example so hopefully that lays out uh, a little bit of what we do. Yeah, so there's a wide range of offerings and your role is a pretty expansive one, you know, covering Europe. So can you tell us a bit more about like what you do, what you like about it, how that role might have evolved over time? Mm -hmm. So I had marketing for Europe. What we call Europe at IG internally is basically mainland Europe. So it's mm -hmm. Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Scandinavia. And what I do is I head the marketing strategy for the region, meaning I take the group, the IG group marketing strategy uh, set by our CMO, Catherine Witten, and I adapt it to the European region. And then our local teams, we have local teams in the markets where we operate, will adapt it a little bit further to make it absolutely perfect uh, based on the competitor landscape, how fragmented the market may be, our brand awareness and whatnot. So I focus on the marketing strategy and then strategic projects that have a regional nature, meaning that it wouldn't be so efficient for each local marketing team to think about the same thing, focus about the same thing. So instead, sure. the regional team that I lead works on that and then the local marketing teams only need to work on like the final 10% to make it perfect and adjust it to their local nuisances. I mean, that's an important part as well about being judicious with time and, you know, customizing a strategy. That's For certainly sure. something um, a lot of different companies can empathize with because the, otherwise you can run yourself ragged, not necessarily for greater returns, right? It's about you know, doing the part that matters. Exactly. So what we try to do in the regional team is to set the foundations, uh, progress with the projects as much as we can. And then when we're almost ready to go, we'll ask the local teams to have a look and perfect them, basically. Yeah, and then that, that kind of customization at the very end is something that will make all the difference, really, you know, having that insight. But when you're um, looking at adapting that overarching strategy, like you said, what is your starting point? Um, is it kind of a, um, taking that plan and then looking at how it can be implemented? Or do you then take some more like, bottom-up uh, information? So looking at the markets themselves and then applying some of the knowledge from 
local teams to the plan. So what's, what's kind of the starting point? Yeah, more like the latter. We normally start from research, from available research, mm-hmm. and we start looking at, as I mentioned briefly before, our brand awareness and brand consideration levels, um, the competitor landscape. Is it a fragmented market? Is a more consolidated market? Um, what is the, the, the market size in our share of it? What do we want to achieve? Because the the group marketing strategy is wider and therefore it can be a little vague. What we try to do is look at how that would really, really play out in markets such as Germany versus Spain versus the Nordics. Um, every market is different. Every competitor is different as well or like set of competitors that we have. So we are very data driven and we invest quite a lot in external research we have a consumer insights team in-house that's brilliant and that are able to translate data into insights, which to me is critical to do marketing properly, right? Like there's a lot of data. It, it can be a blessing, it can be a curse. What you actually want to do is extract the insight and then from them, from, from there, figure out how you want to adapt that strategy into each market. However, because I think I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that the European region is not that diverse. It may, it may seem, but actually it's not that diverse in the sense that um, we, IG is also present in, in APAC. And I definitely, definitely see big difference with like Singapore, Japan, even Australia. When it comes to France versus Germany, it's pretty straightforward. So it's it's not as tough as it can be for other colleagues at IG. So when we're looking at different markets and you mentioned the importance of data and insights, how similar uh, are and different are the opportunities generally that you experience across Europe? So because we operate in a very niche industry of financial trading, Actually, the opportunities are very, very different. Um, If you look at a market such as Germany, for example, it has huge potential uh, versus, for example, Norway, which is a a way smaller country and and it's just a different setup all around. Um, I think when it comes to marketing, because that normally comes from business in the sense of the budget also is based on how big the opportunity is and whatnot. But when it comes to marketing, I think what I try to do is I try to focus on, instead of looking at demographic segmentation, because at the end of the day in Europe, that'll be quite stable when it comes to financial trading. I try to look at the competition and the consideration drivers instead. Mm -hmm. And I try to look at, is there an inside where IG is doing particularly well in one of the drivers so I can leverage on that for the campaigns? And do I feel like I'll be more successful in one market than the other based off that? Um, It's also a matter of... um, Again, competition, brand awareness, maturity of the market, because the products are quite complex and they're not suitable for everyone by default. We need to be really careful about the audience segment that that we target. And so it's just a combination. I just try to generally like step away from, okay, it's going to be 35 to 55 males. That's not going to tell you much about the opportunity. So instead I try to look at other insights that we have available. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting one to, to dig into a little bit more because 
you know, there's like demographic data, there's like behavioral data, there's all sorts of information you, I guess you can draw from analytics and I guess lookalike audiences as well to think, you know, you know, this audience has previously liked this type of product or service, they might like this future one. So what, what type of audiences do you target with the strategy? Uh, and I guess, how do you adapt that strategy to different audiences? Mm -hmm. So, again, because we're in a niche industry and it's heavily regulated, we need to be really, really targeted in, in our segmentation. We we are not even allowed to go to audiences that are maybe too young mm -hmm. or whom the financial situation is not healthy enough to be doing risk leveraged product. But... At IE, we, we try to go over and above that because we are a very responsible company. And just because we can or we could open an account to one user, it doesn't mean that we will. And we actually decline a lot of accounts. Sure. Um, this may seem like a, like a barrier in the short term, but we actually believe and I really believe that in the long term, this makes the company a lot more successful and a lot healthier because we're able to build lasting relationships with our clients, with our customer base. Even for, for users that get their account declined, at first, if you think, for example, of a student that might be very, very interested into financial trading and following the markets and very informed, mm -hmm. but if you're still at university, it may not be the right time for you to start investing or not investing. Investing is not the right word for like financially trading may not be the best option. Mm -hmm. So. Instead, we offer education, we offer lots of resources, but we may not open a particular type of account for you just yet. And I think in the long run, they completely understand that there's there's a moment for everything and we need to be responsible because it's it's your wealth that we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And your financial freedom. So what we try to do, and going back to your question, which I don't think I answered, to be honest, is we look at, uh, we're making sure that the audience has an interest in, in financial trading, in the financial markets, that they are informed enough, that they're um, familiar enough with the product as well, because it's not just following the markets. You may be really, really following the euro dollar and then not be... Uh, comfortable enough with, with contracts for differences or with um, um, our Turbo24 that we offer to go and trade, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to really make sure that we're using the right media, the right channels, that we're not overusing social, paid social media just to uh, grab a younger audience segment just because we can. Uh, so it's quite interesting. And then there's always... There's always the, the difficulty that comes with offline marketing, with print. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more difficult to segment. So what we do in there is we only go for niche publications where we can be completely confident that uh, the audience reading the content and, and then therefore being exposed to our advertising is a suitable audience for the product that we offer. No, I mean, that makes sense, especially because, you know, success isn't just about growth it's about stability and minimizing risk and this is you know interestingly this is also part of you know a financial trading strategy i guess as well weirdly enough you know it's about being able to you know have longer term relationships that people um have a positive association when they think about the brand 
And, you know, if, if, if somebody has a, you know, has a bad experience straight away, it'll be much harder to win them back later on or they'll be missing out on a, you know, an experience that might eventually have been a positive one had they found the right product and educated themselves in the right way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense about company health and having a, a more stable approach to growth. A hundred percent. When it comes to, I guess, this is partly a product question, I suppose, but also um, a, a market fit question. But are there any trends in the industry when it comes to how products and platforms are marketed at the moment? I guess some of those you've touched on already, you know, but the, the kind of offline marketing where you're wanting to be very certain about the audience. But online, are, is there any platforms or approaches that are coming into more prominence? Um, I'm not sure that the financial uh, services industry is maybe the most innovative mm -hmm. when it comes to marketing. I don't think we're the trailblazers here. I think partly because of the regulation that I mentioned, we are quite cautious in our approach. For example, if you look at how long it took us to um, to start doing proper organic social media. Mm -hmm. um, but there are trends that I'm definitely seeing in digital marketing that we are trying to explore, just like everyone else. Um, I think personalization obviously has been around for a long time. What I'm noticing now is that everyone's trying to start a lot earlier on in the marketing funnel. So it's almost like personalization when you already are a client is almost like a given. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a hygiene factor if it's not there your customer is not going to be satisfied. But these days it seems like it should start from the lead stage, which is funny because obviously now with less cookies available, third-party cookies available, it's becoming more and more difficult and it's becoming more and more of a necessity. So it's a, it's a strange dichotomy that we're seeing there. So we're trying to personalize the experience from the advertisement a stage in which we're just trying to get a lead. I think for brand awareness, that's very difficult. But when it comes to consideration in obtaining a lead, personalization, I'm seeing more and more everywhere, IG included. Another trend that we are trying to get ahead of is uh, obviously AI mm -hmm. uh, applied to marketing. And I think the tricky part, especially in the financial industry, is how to still be compliant, how to ensure that the content is 100% accurate, is responsible, is um, valuable for your audience, but we're finding it useful in aspect, when it comes to marketing production more than anything else, when it comes to translations, even copywriting, um, we're also using it for design and exploring with it. And I think this is something where all marketeers, myself included, of course, should be paying a lot of attention, how to properly use it to your advantage as in, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for maybe completely stop to use agencies, right? I'm a big fan of agencies if you want top-notch creative work. But sometimes the conversations with the agencies, working with the agencies, transmitting to them, communicating to them what you really have in mind mm -hmm. can be difficult. And I love that you can use AI to come up with 
sketches with drafts of what you had in mind that can share your vision with the agency in a very, very efficient way. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting. So I think it's so... Um, I think, you know, the use of AI to sketch out ideas as to, to help and assist the thought process is definitely something that I'm, I'm doing more and more often. Um, and I think it's one of these areas where I think some people do use it as a substitute for dialogue, perhaps with colleagues and a substitute for dialogue <laughs> with agencies or whoever. So I'm not, I'm not too sure about that. Um, but it definitely makes sense when it comes to getting an idea for a framework or figuring out food for thought. A hundred percent. I think for us, our site, so like we do, so we do something like a million words of content every month, something like this, and we work very heavily wow. in regulated industries. So for us, the the risk is too huge to ever consider using AI content for anything public facing. You know, it's one of these things where, yeah. I personally. I am like the grumpiest cynic when it comes to Google and what they say <laughs> and how they say AI works and what they say they will do about AI-driven content. Um, but it's also, as, as, you, as you said, it's a you know regulated sector, so the, the danger could be that something very plausible is created with AI, but it's actually not compliant. So you still need the guiding. I think completely agree with you. I think the way we are approaching it, and to me it makes the most sense, is you use it as an aid. It's an extra tool in your toolbox. So, for example, at IE, we create a lot of content in various formats every day. And we cover a lot of markets. So, when it comes to translation, it really helps. It can speed up the work of our translators. But we always have the final check by a human. Mm -hmm. So I'm not suggesting that you just hand it over to the AI and be done with it. But I think it can definitely speed up certain aspects. And it also can make that work experience for your employees a lot more enjoyable in the sense that, for example, um, when they're translating legal docs, for example, that's not the most exciting thing. That's not the most creative thing but we need it, it needs to get done. So if they can be supported by AI to maybe cover more ground when it comes to legal docs that need literally zero creative input, mm -hmm. that means that they have extra time they can put on creative work when it comes to localizing campaign copy, commercial copy, where the, well, the brain of a human is always going to produce something completely original versus AI is only taken from different sources. So by default, it may not be original. And then our compliance department is also heavily uh, involved in, in all of our work. So the way I see it, the trend is to try to incorporate AI in a way that works with your business, with your company, with your setup, but it's not as a substitute for, for human creativity. It's more like a tool that you can that you can use. Well, I mean, on that point about creativity, given the nature of the industry, which you know it can be a little bit dry, it can be uh, hard to differentiate versus competitors, given some similar offerings or similar expectations from customers. How important is it to be creative in your campaigns and? Uh, the, the kind of marketing initiatives that you, you undertake? Hmm. Well, very, as you can imagine, as you were saying, it's not an industry that's particularly um, 
innovative when it comes to marketing. It, it's not necessarily attractive mm -hmm. every time. And at IE, we're very aware of that. So what we try to do is we try to really hone on that creativity. And we have an in-house agency, but we also collaborate with external agencies to obtain the best of that mix. There'll be jobs where we want to go in-house. There'll be maybe bigger brand campaigns where we really want a local agency. So we recently did a brand campaign for Europe, but we launched with Germany first. And we wanted a local team. We wanted local strategists, local copywriters. Uh, so we went for an external agency for that. And we're super excited and we're seeing amazing results already with uh, with the research that we conduct and the monitoring that we do. Um, and, and I think differentiating your brand is critical because at the end of the day, uh, I always say that at IE, we're not just the transactional app on your phone. We are your trading partner. We're a 360 partner. We will give you education. We will give you content. Will then you will you will do your execute your trades on your phone or, or desktop, but through an app. But the app is just a fraction of who we are. Yeah. And then there's customer service if you need anything from us. There's a number of things, and to properly communicate that, you need creative campaigns. They are not just stating facts. You can state a number of facts, but likely the audience is not going to remember all of them, right? So you really need to work on that creative aspect of establishing almost like an emotional connection with your audience. So you need to stand for something. We're also a value-driven and a mission-driven company. And I think more and more, especially in the younger audiences, your, your customer needs to align with your values and they need to stand, understand what you stand for. And only then they will start to see you not as a transactional app on your phone, but as your partner that they can turn to and, and then, then they will consume your content and follow you on social media. And you build, the way you said before, Martin, a more lasting relationship and more lasting and deeper connection. Because if not, in, in very competitive markets or industries like financial trading, where markets are very fragmented, the competitor landscape is really wide, really diverse. Why will the audience pick your brand and not another brand? And your pricing strategy can only take you so far and competing on price is, I would say, never yeah, the best idea. <laughs> so I mean, it's, it's something that maybe one person can succeed at because only one person can be cheapest. You know, it's one of these things where everyone else would suffer. Uh, but that, that, that point comes up quite a lot on this podcast, you know, the idea that it's not just about, you know, um, communicating what you do or what you offer, but having some kind of extra level of creativity or initiative around marketing that allows people to feel something, because that'll, that aids memory, you know, and if you stand for something as well, 100%. it also has that practical benefit of increasing the likelihood that you'll be remembered and known and that's definitely um, critical when it comes to building trust. And trust is probably one of the most important things when it comes to this industry in particular, because it's, yeah, it's a your money, your life. It's your money, money. right? So, yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting one, when you, especially when you consider the wider funnel. Um, when you consider, like, all the different possible channels, there's a, there's a whole range of ways to... Um, encounter audiences and it's not necessarily in fact it's probably almost never linear 
So we talk about a funnel, mm-hmm. which is like unidirectional, but it's not really how people really make a buying decision often. So how, how do you blend online and offline to get the type of reach that you want? And I guess also how important is paid media versus organic approaches like SEO? Mm-hmm. So obviously when you're building a marketing mix, you build your ideal user journey. It doesn't mean that I will go as planned. I think these days we all hop on and off our phone, our laptop, then you're taking the bus and you see something uh, out of home. So it's difficult. We tend to approach it for a more offline uh, like offline channels tend to be more important for us when we're building the brand and generating that uh, that awareness. Um, but lately, obviously, social has played a pivotal part for us, especially, and I don't know if this is the same for every industry, but in the financial industry, there's a lot of content that's happening on video mm-hmm. and that's happening on social. So YouTube is critical. Um, Twitter is critical. And that means that if, you're, if your audience is consuming content on social and you're not building your, your brand, your brand awareness on social, then you're missing an opportunity. It's funny because I have worked for IG for over 15 years. And obviously, the marketing plans that I did when I joined in 2008 are completely different to what we do these days. But I think broadly speaking, we use a lot of offline and social media for brand awareness. And then uh, as we go further down in the funnel through consideration and acquisition, digital becomes a lot more important. And then when it comes to uh, engagement, reactivation and, and advocacy, it's a complete mix. Also, because we are on the phone with our clients a lot, which I think might be quite specific to Mm -hmm. our industry, maybe not as applicable to others and definitely not as scalable. But actually, nothing can beat a one-to-one conversation with an employee, which is why we pay so much attention to our talent and to retaining good talent, attracting new talent. Because at the end of the day, and going back on your point or on trust, I think nothing can beat a human conversation. I know for for younger audiences, chat box are working like a mm-hmm. charm and their their satisfaction levels and their acceptance of being serviced through a chat box are going up and up the younger they are. But I think uh, for, for older audiences such as myself, <laughs> nothing can beat a, a good old <laughs> phone conversation. Um, in regards to paid versus organic, Again, I think it's a mix. I think it's very dangerous to to put all of your eggs in the same basket and say, no, we will only do organic or we only believe in paid. I think there's always the long-term versus short-term debate, right? If you want a short-term tactic and you need some results right away, by all means, do some PPC. It will work like a term. And, and, and there's no question to that, and it's very efficient. For long-term growth, I don't think you can forget about SEO. And SEO is long-term in every aspect in the sense that it will also take you longer to write meaningful and valuable content and to then make it grow and, and, and do the technical aspects of it so that it will grant you the results that you want. But in a year from now, you will be very, very glad that you did it 
versus a PPC campaign you're doing today that you could stop any minute and it stops there. So I think it's dangerous to focus on only one of them. And I think based on the current market conditions, competition. Uh, in our case, is there anything interesting happening in the markets? If there's a big market event, something is happening, volatility is going up, we hone in on short-term sure. tactics where we can try to absorb as much as we can while we keep uh, year-round always on effort on organic channels as I mean, well. I think it's interesting because a lot of the time these days, and I think I think it's a good thing, SEO is talked about almost in the same way that people talk about investing in brand. You know, it's about the long-term factor. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody wants to find brand marketing as, you know, what people say when you're no longer in the room, that type of thing. And I think SEO is similar because you're not pushing something towards somebody. They're discovering content for themselves and forming some opinions, hopefully good opinions, based upon your SEO strategy, their content strategy, how localized it is. Um, but before we move on, I have to say, when you said 15 years ago, I thought that was 1990. I cannot face it. We're old, I can't Martin, face we're old. 2008 was 15 years ago. That is crazy to me. That, that should be illegal. That yes. should not be allowed. But yeah, so I mean, I think those are really good answers around the, you know the blend of paid and the, you know the, the tactical benefits of that if there's an opportunity to dive into, and then the more uh, long-term stuff around SEO that that does bolster the brand and the, the image you have it more generally. I mean, I wanted. To- I think it's a matter of being agile, maybe, and not being too complacent, sure. in the sense that you may have what you think is a perfect strategy. But should something change in the market or should your strategy not work or something? It's, I think we just need to be very agile and very humble to just write off everything that we had planned and pivot very quickly. Yeah, I think that's, again, putting ego to, one, ego to one side, looking at what practically works and what the real opportunities are, what the real risks might be, and mm-hmm. taking a logical approach is really important. Um, so you, you, I mean, we talked a little bit about localization already and about the importance of local teams to customize the final 10% or 15% of the marketing plan. Um, How important is it to have a really robust approach to content in that regard? So customizing content to local audiences, how do you go about doing that? I think it's critical because at the end of the day, your local audience will be interested in what they are interested. And for us, that may be to give you a a real example. You may want to write about uh, globally popular stocks, but at the end of the day, my clients in Spain want to hear about Spanish stocks and the French ones want to hear about French companies and same for the Italians, Germans, whatnot. So at the end of the day, I think it's again keeping a balance between finding synergies and keeping things efficient when it comes to very popular markets while still keeping an eye on local trends that you can spot on social media, if you're close enough to your clients where you should be, like you should be listening to what your customers are interested into, looking at what they trade. And I'm I'm giving very financial examples, but I think to some extent this you can extrapolate these to other industries. What are the products that your clients are searching for per market and therefore write about that, focus on that, even if you know you have some products that are universally attractive and universally demanded. So I think the the 
problem with not giving your audience what they're after is that they become disconnected and they may still to feel that the brand is not for them, that you're not aligned with what they need, what they demand, um, which eventually will mean they will start to consider other brands. So if you want to build those lasting relationships, you need to be client-centric and that goes out to content as well. And I've had this conversation with our analysts quite a few times because there's also these this uh, gap that can be smaller or wider depending on the situation, but there'll be a gap between the expert and the customer. So sometimes the experts are really, really interested into one particular market, like one stock, one index, whatever. And you can see on your searches and on your trades that your client base has their sight on something different. And it's like, just give them what they want. And I'm not saying you're, you don't offer inspiration mm-hmm. And you don't cover all the markets to keep them also entertained to some extent and inspired and you expand their horizons. That's great. But at the end of the day, we need to close that gap and ensure our customers that we are aligned with them, that they are the right brand for them, that they're because if you don't feel that the brand is for someone like you likely you're going to find someone that is. And I think this comes back to the personalization point where we're talking about and often when we talk, when mm-hmm. often when we, when we discuss personalization, we mean, you know, personalization with a technical factor. You know, like looking at data from cookies and analytics and stuff like this, and then customizing what people see and do. But there's also an element of personalization in just literally using the data you have and, you know, focusing in on the big messages that you know are going to be relevant to those audiences. For example, French stocks or German stocks or Spanish stocks, whatever it happens to be. Um, and not pushing away the customer. Um, exactly. I mean, and this is, again, some, probably something where people in e-commerce and travel and other uh, industries can also empathise because there's no online business that is completely frictionless. There's always friction. You have to sign up, you have to download, you have to have some checks, you have to you know, communicate your payment details. So there's always friction, but companies can choose to minimize some of that friction by, you know, displaying what they're about, what they're interested in, and also communicating information that search trends and other bits of data are telling them about the customer. A hundred percent. I think sometimes first party data I think in a way, historically, has been almost like the lesser one because it was so interesting to use mm. third-party data to run your campaigns. Those would, those would be a lot more efficient. The click-through rate would go up, and we all want that. And it's obviously very, very appealing. But I think um, because as as consumers, we are influenced not just when you're looking at your financial services, you're influenced not just by your other financial services providers, but also by other sectors. It's like the Amazon Prime effect. We want everything yeah. quickly. We want, over, we want everything same day. And we expect every provider that we use and every service that we use to sort of live up to that standard. Like it's almost like unknowingly, or maybe we're not very, very aware of that, but you're expecting them that it'll be omni-channel, that they will remember everything, that they will suggest mm-hmm. what you would like, that it'll be fast. And I think in that sense, you can only 
you can get some information externally, but the best approach is to look at your first party data to truly understand your client, what they've been doing with you, like what what uh, goods they purchased or what services they they hired or so it's almost like keeping an eye on your on your first party data to ensure that the experience that you serve is the best possible one while keeping an eye on not just competitors because at the end of the day competitors obviously play a big part but also like what is uber doing what is amazon doing what is netflix doing because the audience's expectations are also influenced by all of that which is tricky because again depending on how regulated your business is, how fragmented the market is, and of course your budget, the, the market demand uh, at each given point will influence your decisions. But I think the expectations are going up mm. and up and up. And, and that's a trend that will not stop the way I mean, it's, it's quite peculiar because sometimes, well, we all have different expectations based on different apps and different products. Um, but those expectations can change really quickly if somebody was to innovate. That's the thing. I think sometimes people will follow their competitors constantly and think, well, so long as I'm no worse than those guys, everything's fine. And the customers might also be broadly okay with it because they like the particular product or service. But as soon as somebody takes inspiration from some other sector that maybe does have a more modern approach, that really sets the bar a lot higher. So it's important not to be complacent. And it's, this isn't just yeah. like a product question. It's a, it's a marketing issue, isn't it? It's a, you know, it comes back to the wider experience. It totally is because even if you're not worse off than your competitors, that may mean you don't lose your clients. May or may not, but but you're likely not getting referrals yeah, exactly. either. So your advocacy levels will not be very high because if your customer is not completely in love with your product or service, they're not going to recommend it to their friends, their family members. So you will be okay-ish where you are, but you're not going to grow. And at the same time, how do you know that your competitor is not researching something yeah. right now, developing something right now, and in a month from now, you're behind? So I think keeping an eye on pretty much, and, and I don't think it's extra work because we are mm. all consumers. So you're literally using services, you're literally uh, using apps on your phone, uh, receiving different, being served different experiences from different brands in different sectors. And you can always learn from the, if you like something, try to figure out, like try to think about why did I like this so much or why did this piss me off so much and try to just like abstract that into your own brand and see if you can bring something I mean, externally. There's no, no shortage of inspiration. I think sometimes there's a shortage of motivation depending on the company and depending on the, <laughs> you know, the, the standards of the sector. So yeah, I think that's where, you know, it's yeah. worth looking at what could be possible and trying for better because it's particularly when it's a, uh, we, we say this a lot because it's a lot of the sectors we work in, it's an, it's an invisible service really. Like nobody really knows what it's like to trade mm -hmm. with you guys until they do it. It's not like they can check it out very easily and as if they're evaluating a pair of jeans or something. You know, you've got to have the full experience. Exactly. Exactly. And at the end of the day, unless you're getting your advocacy right, you're always going to have negative reviews. 
literally every brand, every service will eventually get negative reviews because there's always going to be someone who didn't love your experience. So if you're not able to counteract that with mm. positive, spontaneous, authentic reviews or comments in mm. forums, blogs, whatnot, which is really, really common in the financial industry, there's no way to offset the, the clients that were not oh, super and, happy. And the bar is a lot higher for that as well. Like for me to be motivated enough to leave a positive review, I have to be super happy like to do it like spontaneously. Completely. But the moment you're like half bothered with a bad experience, we yeah, will all I'm, jump I'm, I'm into Trustpilot or Google and leave a person. So yeah, it, you know, a slight stub my toe <laughs> and then this hotel gets one star out of five. So it's one of these things that, you know, investing in the experience also impacts the quality of your reputation, which impacts trust and all the other things that we're talking about. And there's, there's always things that you can do, but it might just be you're left with the most expensive brute force paid media marketing rather than the advocacy, exactly. positive reviews, positive reputation, creative marketing as well that creates an emotional impact or mm-hmm. um, feeling with people. The other thing about reviews and your brand reputation overall is that it also impacts your ability to recruit mm. new talent because in these days where information is so readily available, before you consider taking an offer or even applying for a job, you're going to do a little bit of research. You may be more thoughtful or less, but everyone will have a look. If your Google reviews are not good, I'm not even saying you need to go to literally like mm-hmm. Glassdoor, I think it's called, where you literally can see reviews of companies from an employee point of view. But if the reviews uh, from clients is not good enough, I would say that your your ability to attract new talent is also going to be impacted yeah, so by kind of, The whole thing feeds itself in a way, either positively mm-hmm. or negatively. Um, so we've talked a lot about data already and you know the importance of paying attention to first-party data, certainly, but also we mentioned third-party data and all this type of stuff. Um, in terms of how data is used, do you think there's anything in particular marketing professionals in other sectors can learn from how you guys work and the sector in general? So I don't know about the sector overall, but at IE, we are lucky to have a very strong marketing intelligence team. Uh, They are part of the marketing strategy team, which really helps. And we also have the consumer insights team. So as I briefly mentioned before, to me, it's not just having Mm. access to the data, it's having someone that can interpret that data for me, extract an insight, lead me into the right direction. So the way we go about it is, when I need to know more about something or if I think I'm onto something, either because something is working particularly well or not performing the way that I expected it to be, or we find a new segment in our client base that seems interesting for whatever the reason, we will talk to marketing intelligence, have a small discussion with them. What do you think that could be? Do we have any dashboards already available for us? We use Tableau Mm -hmm. as a tool, which is, again, really intuitive. So is there anything that I can go and have a look at already? If not, can you build something for me, please? And they don't just come back 
with that report or like it's not just data. They will come back to us with some analysis, some insights, even yeah. if it's inconclusive. But at least you know that, no, you thought you were into something, you're not. Um, and then the consumer insights are paying attention also to external available research. We also invest quite a lot of money in obtaining third-party research, which I think obviously is subject to, to yeah. have enough budget to do it. But in our case, being a solid company, we, we have the luxury of, uh, we're, we're able to tap into that. So I think it's maybe what I'm trying to say is, I don't think you can simply ask or expect your local marketing teams to also be mm. a data expert. I think you need to invest, if you can, in the infrastructure to allow them to focus on what they need to focus on. And then you have some data experts, ideally marketing experts as well, if you can, that can almost like digest. Yeah, I think that's really important. You. And if you do have that luxury of having multiple data sources and testing out internal data to see how similar or different it is, that can be really, really powerful. But also like being honest about, you know, who among us is actually a data scientist or qualified enough to make a really informed decision. I think so many decisions are made based upon some data <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't necessarily, doesn't <laughs> necessarily mean it's a good decision. It's, I mean, and I think your point about inconclusive data is important as well. Sometimes inconclusive is good because it means you shouldn't jump full steam ahead into something because the, the data is not there. Likewise, sometimes data is conflicting and that's okay too. It might be unsatisfying, mm -hmm. but it, you know, can prevent you from making a wrong decision or can encourage you to use more qualitative measures to test out what could be possible. Yeah, I think there's loads of stuff in there. Absolutely. So there's one question we always like to finish up on or a variation of this question anyway, um, which is like, how do you, you know, build a high performing team? And in this case, how do you do it in you know finance? Because there's lots of regulatory considerations as we discussed, there's enormous competition, there's increasing customer, um, I guess, interest, but also um, expectation. So what kind of uh, approaches yeah. should you take to building a team and what other stakeholders internally are important yeah. to support that? I may have like a, I don't know, it's a little bit of controversy around this. My point of view is I do not look at their financial mm -hmm. services experience. I'm building, I'm building, and I've been recruiting quite a lot lately, actually. I've been building a marketing renal team, and therefore, what I want is a diverse and complementary uh, team of experts mm -hmm. in marketing. And then internally, I can train them on product, on regulation, on the competition, on the markets, local nuisances, whatnot. What I cannot do is I cannot train them to be the perfect, I don't know, acquisition expert, media expert, CRM expert. So what I try to do is I look at what I, what skills I already have in my team mm -hmm. and where are the gaps. And I try to fill those gaps. 
And it's very rare that I will find someone coming from such a niche industry of financial trading. So instead, I almost like forget about that, focus on getting the best possible candidate that I can. I also think there's value in bringing someone from a different industry for the reasons that we were mentioning before, because they may have innovated with something Mm -hmm. that we're not exploring yet, or they may have already failed with something and they can save me some time. So I focus on skills and gaps. And then I, quite frankly, also pay a lot of attention to their personality traits Mm -hmm. and their characters. Um, And again, I always start from what I already have in-house so that I can add more value and I don't have a duplication of, of skills or conflicting personalities, if that makes sense. And I know that there's different schools of thought for these. So far, so good. And (laughs) I guess that's my point of view. And then in terms of uh, who is involved internally, what are the the teams that are involved? Um, HR, the the recruiting in HR team, they always do a first screening and they're very, very good. Shout out to them because they always being really good candidates. And then, um, of course, I interview myself to start with because I don't want to waste any time from my colleagues. And the next step is I ask an expert in whoever field I'm recruiting for. So I am not an expert in any particular marketing field, which is what I like most Mm -hmm. about my job, is that I have like a generalistic profile where I have a lot of different conversations. I can make decisions about strategy based off the information that I get from the teams and the analysis that I get from the teams. Um, but I'm not an expert in a particular field. So what I do is I ask, hey, PPC expert, can you please interview someone for me? CRM expert, can you please interview someone for me? And almost like give me the green light that the technical knowledge is in there. And I'll make sure that that they will fit into my existing team and they will fill the gaps I need them to fill. So that's how I oh, approach yeah, plenty it. Plenty of food for thought there about the importance of yeah having some some prior background that can be brought in so something something new um making sure there's a fit within the wider team and yeah all these different things and it's something again that comes up quite a lot on this podcast you know the notion that you can't necessarily train motivation you know but um you can definitely shape product knowledge and all these other practical things as well with the the right motivation so Marta, I need to say thank you. We covered so many topics from data and personalization to the importance of, you know, telling a story, creating an emotional connection where possible, being creative in an industry that is sometimes uncreative, uh, balancing out paid and organic. We've talked a little bit about uh, the nature of the industry. We've talked a bit about audiences, the limitations of data, the importance of drawing upon um expertise from all corners so yeah we've covered so many different things so i need to say thank you for that thank you for having me it was such a fun chat oh it was our pleasure so thank you very much yeah.